We're starting a new series on a worshipping community. And one of the areas we're going, where we're going to be looking on that is from Psalms. But as an introduction, I want to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 26. If you've got your Bible, you can turn to it, or I see it's very efficiently already up on the screen. So 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. I think because in the past in the church, things like prophecy and uh, pictures, interpretations, tongues, had got lost in many ways, one of the things which the New Frontiers stream of churches came from was from people who are seeking to reintroduce that into the church so the church would be uh, fully biblical. As you notice, in our services we tend to be less formal. That has many advantages because it makes it a lot easier for people to bring contributions as Paul told the Corinthians. In fact, reading on in that passage is almost his expectation is that so many people come with contributions there's not time for everybody to bring what they've contributed. Which is not quite the situation we're in. If you're in a more traditional church there would be a Frequently, you would have an Old Testament reading, a psalm, and a New Testament reading. Now, obviously, from what I was reading, one of the things we can bring in a service is a reading from Scripture. But maybe that's something which we don't emphasise. Well, not so much emphasise, it's not something we necessarily do as much. So sometimes people will bring a Scripture and then say a bit about what it's meant to them, as is implied in the passage I've just read. But also, it is appropriate to bring a scripture as well, and not say anything about it. A few verses or a group of verses. Now, when Sam and I were talking about this series, he did comment that he noticed that often when I bring a scripture, I bring a psalm. Uh, There's two reasons for that. One is they're easy to find in the Bible, Uh, They're usually about the middle. And the other reason is actually the Psalms were written for use in worship. (coughs) So therefore, often if you take a reading from another part of the Bible, which is perfectly acceptable to do, you tend to restrict it to a few verses because uh, those are the ones which are bringing out the point you particularly feel is important at that time. But psalms are written to be read or sung and therefore often they take you more on a journey. Sometimes you just read a few verses but sometimes they will take you on a journey from deep despair into renewed expectation in what God's going to do. So what we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks in terms of being a worshipping community is looking at some psalms. 
Now, if you take a look at, sort of flick through, not I suggest you do it now, uh, the book of Psalms in the Bible, you'll find they're actually divided up into five books. So what is usually thought is that the Psalms as we have them are actually an amalgamation of five different collections of hymns, five different collections of Psalms. Now there's various reasons for thinking that. You find the first two books, the vast majority of the Psalms are written by David, and the last three books, only a few are. There are two pairs of Psalms which are virtually identical, which suggests that uh, they probably come from the same original psalm, which has got adapted slightly in two different versions, and they both come in here, in uh, uh, the Bible. As you'll be aware with hymns, that if you've got an old hymn, you get some people, there can end up with several different variants uh, according to how it's uh, been adjusted over the years. So, what we have is not a book which was written in one time. We have a collection which has built up over the centuries. And in a sense, these psalms have gone from being songs which people sang to God to being recognised because of their particular quality as actually telling us something about God as well. This morning, I'm going to start in the obvious way by talking about Psalm number one. But it's, apart from the fact that it is number one, so therefore it's presumably the obvious first one to talk about, the, there's also an understanding which has been there for centuries, I think even from the, you know, the, uh, before the time of Jesus, that the first psalm, possibly the first two psalms, were written as an introduction to the whole lot, to introduce us to the Psalms. So as we look at it, it will speak to us about all of them. So Psalm 1, again, this will come up on the screen. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now if your Bible is anything like mine, it shows a structure in this, that you've got three pairs of verses. Originally, I was going to call these three pairs, firstly, the choice, the consequence, 
and then why this will happen. But seeing I've got two C's, I thought I'd better change the last one to the cause. But <laughs> it's basically the same meaning. So, verses 1 and 2, the choice. Are you going to sit in the council or walk in the council of the wicked? Or are you going to find your delight in the law of the Lord? In verse 1, three phrases are used. It talks about the council of the wicked, the way of sinners, the seat of scoffers. So it's questioning us about our thinking, about our behaving, and about our belonging. While, by contrast, when we look at the righteous man, and again, if it's your Bible is anything like mine, after the first time it says man in the uh, beginning of the verse, there's a little one. And if you look at the bottom of uh, your Bible, it says something on the lines of the singular Hebrew word for man, ish, is used here to portray a representative example of a godly person. Some people would probably use the word person here to convey the same idea. I wouldn't argue strongly for one or the other. It depends a lot, I think, on your age and your culture and what background you have, whichever you think is more appropriate. But the point here is that when it's saying man, it doesn't mean a male individual is not the concept which is coming over. So, with this righteous person, it says his delight is in the law. Actually, he's only talking about the thinking. He doesn't get on to the others. Because actually, in many ways, the way we think then controls our behaviour and our belonging. Not absolutely. The process can work the other way round, particularly in the case of uh, the wicked side. But it does show that what we think matters. And we have a choice in terms of how we think. When it talks about the wicked here, it's talking about general culture. Or, so we can go with the flow with how everyone else thinks, or we can consider, as it says in verse 2, meditate day and night on the law of the Lord. Law here is not so much looking at, say, something like the Ten Commandments. It could be considered originally as looking at the first five books of the Bible. But actually, we could take it further than that. It's telling us anything about uh, God, the, us, the Old Testament scriptures and the New Testament scriptures. So... Do we concentrate on those? Do we think about it? Do we let it affect our lives? 
I can write the little note I scribbled earlier when I was singing. With that new, the new song we're singing, it was, I didn't get the exact words because they'd moved on from it by the time I thought, well, that's quite useful for my sermon. Uh, but it was talking very much about we are who you say we are. So, do we actually let what God says about us affect us? Do we know what God says about us to let it affect us? Alex, if I can, uh, without your permission, take advantage of what I think you said, was it last week, about uh, the weekend away, you know, it really struck you, you needed to read the Bible more. If we don't know what it says, we can't let it affect us. And so therefore, we need to let looking at God's word affect our life. I'm quite happy for any of you to ask me at any time, how am I getting on with reading the Bible? Because I know I'm not as good at it as I should be. I've got the slight advantage of having been looking at it not that well, always, over the last 50 years, I probably know quite a bit of it. But, and, you know, I do let it affect my brain. But I think all of us occasionally need a remark, you know, a friend who says, you know, well, how's it going? You know, not that I want, I'm going to suddenly start reading my Bible this week because I think next week I'm going to get half a dozen people asking me. It doesn't quite work that way. But it is, you know, it's a good encouragement not to hide what we're like. To be willing to be open. And also, just to pick up on, I think, what Lou was saying about not getting anything out of a service. In a different context this week, I was writing to somebody and commenting on what I saw as a culture of people thinking things are only worth going to if they get something out of it. Now, I hope when you come to the services here, you do get something out of it. In fact, before the service, when we were praying, we were praying that there be at least one person who God would make a... Uh, to get the exact word we use now breakthrough, that's the word, in their life on something. And I was also praying that God would help everyone to take a step or two forward. Because God works through breakthroughs, but most of the time he works through steps forward. So I hope that is what's going to happen. You will get something out of today. But actually, does it matter if you don't? In one sense, it does, because it means you've got less than you could have got. But on the other hand, we're not here primarily for what we get out. Although, as I've said before, there's an awful lot you do get out of coming to church. Primarily, we're here to worship, to give glory to God. In many senses, we're here for what we give, not for what we get. God is very gracious, and we often get vastly more than we give. And we certainly get vastly more than we deserve. So, as I say, I think a culture where you think you only go to something because you get something out of it is dangerous. 
because there will be times when there isn't any obvious benefit to you. So, but does that mean you stop joining with God's people? Or do we let God's law, his word, really embed itself in our hearts and minds? Where New Testament, you know, it says, you know, don't neglect to me as is the habit of some. So it's nothing new. It's been happening since the start of the church. Came across a quote this morning. Permit, permit not your minds to be easily distracted or you will often have your devotion destroyed. It sounds like it's written for the uh, Twitter and Facebook age. It was actually Spurgeon who said it. So it just goes to show that you don't need a uh, mobile phone to get distracted. There's plenty of ways of getting distracted and which people have found right through the generations. And, you know, different people will find different things, but do we let ourselves get distracted or do we allow God's word to get embedded in us? And interestingly, the verse used in Psalm 1 verse 2 to meditate on God's law is used in Psalm 2 verse 1 for where the people plot in vain. So when we use our thinking, are we using it in a positive way to meditate on God's law or using it to plot against God? We have the choice. Secondly, verses 3 and 4, we've got the consequence. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. This is talking about the righteous man that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither in all that he does he prospers the wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away is this talking about now or is this talking about the future as often in scripture probably both and we'll see different mixes of it at different times Because certainly, as Habakkuk commented on, that frequently the wicked seem to be doing very nicely, thank you, and they don't seem that much like chaff which is about to blow away. But we know that is long-term what the context is. And sometimes when we seek to meditate on God's word, we seek to be righteous, We don't always feel like a tree by a stream getting well watered. I think with this image, I think we need to look at it in the sort of Middle Eastern context. You know, I think when we think of uh, streams, we probably think of, if it's anything like me, you think of the Lake District, because that's obviously the best place to find streams. Uh, But, or if you go, because you don't get too many in the Kentish Downs to think about them around here. But, you know, we tend to think of somewhere green. But the context here, probably it's pretty dry where the stream is. But because the tree is there by the stream, its roots go down deep into the water. 
And like with uh, Edward Berea's work in Samburu, when the streams dried, there's still water underneath flowing, which you can then get, and the roots still get water, still get fed, and the tree continues to grow. That's the sort of image. But when I was it, it was that make lunch, wasn't it, on Monday, we did uh, daffodils in pots as the craft. I suddenly thought, ah, that's a good one, illustration for my sermon. See, what are we? Are we little plants in pots? Or are we streams planted out? Sorry, by streams, trees, by streams planted out. Daffodils in pots can look very nice. In fact, we had some uh, hyacinths in a pot from Christmas. They can look very nice, but if something's in a pot, you've got to water it. And if you leave it in a pot too long, it gets pot-bound. There no, isn't space for the roots. And then all you need is somebody to go off on holiday and somebody else to forget to do the watering. And you uh, have an ex-plant in a pot rather than a plant in a pot. What are we like? Are we like plants in pots which rely on somebody on a Sunday giving you a little bit of water to keep you going through the week? Or are we meditating on God's word, letting his word get into us so our roots go down deep into what God has for us? So that even when things look grim, God still provides. I think sometimes verses like verse 3 seem a bit uh, as if they don't work because sometimes we ask and we don't really seem to get the fruit. The thing which reminded me from that was from James chapter 4 and verse 3 where James says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend on your passions. Again, we need to let all of scripture embed Now, obviously, with James' full quote, I'm guilty of what I always say you shouldn't do, of just lifting a verse out of context. Though, actually, when you look at the context of that, it's even grimmer than that verse is. uh, But it's a good, you know, let's look at the things which don't look as good as well as the things which do look good to let them impact us. So, verse 3 I think, can only work with verse 2. It's only as we meditate on God's word, let it really get deep into us, that we can let God's instruction change our way of thinking and enable us uh, to survive when things look grim. But how do we know long term this is what will happen? So verses 5 and 6. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So, again, comparing back to Habakkuk, if things don't seem to be happening out the way you think they ought to now, because God is a God of justice, it doesn't mean he doesn't see And it doesn't mean he isn't a God of justice. That time will come. 
Of course, we know that we all deserve God's condemnation because none of us can meet his standards of righteousness. But as is hinted in Psalm 2 verses 7 and 8 where it says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Where we have a hint there of the coming Messiah, of Jesus. And that although we know we don't deserve to be in God's presence, as it says in verse 5, in the congregation of the righteous, we know that through Jesus we can be because he took our sins and gave us his righteousness. So therefore we can be there. So can I encourage you to read scripture, think about it. Sort of reading the Bible in a year can be good because all the scripture is good and we need to make sure we don't hide away from bits of it because we find them a bit difficult, a bit uncomfortable. But only trying to read through the Bible in a year, so you're doing three chapters a day and five on Sunday, I think it is, can mean you're just reading and not, med not thinking, not meditating. And again, like many things, it's not an either or. Sometimes it's good to read a whole book of the Bible in one go to get the big picture of it. Sometimes it's good just to take a verse and to think about it or a few words and just let them sink in. So can I encourage you in find different ways and maybe be a thing for growth groups. Just something to discuss among yourselves. What ways do you find help you to meditate on scripture? help you to get scripture in. What works for one person might not work for you, but the more ideas you get exposed to, the more chance you will expand. So rather than just sticking with one way which you always approach scripture, that you're looking at it in different ways. So that we can all benefit and encourage one another in that. Let's pray.